Hey, everybody. I am Joe Marcello, joined as always by my bandit brothers, Oren Phillips. Hey, everybody. And Mike Farah. Howdy, everyone. Well, if you're listening to us, that means it's Wednesday, it's comic book day, and more importantly, it's Dollar Bin Bandit Day. And today, we are bringing you an interview with someone who I consider to be on the Mount Rushmore of comic book writers. Uh, He is another member of comic book royalty. He is also the architect of Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's right. We are talking to none other than Marv Wolfman. Yeah, Mr. Wolfman's also been part of uh, one of the most underrated series of the 80s, the uh, Vigilante series for DC. Uh, Vigilante now, you know, in Peacemaker, a much different version than what he came up with. Um, and he speaks about uh, the original series, and it's, it's so worth reading. And um, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up Teen Titans, which we do in the interview. Um, huge defining run on that title. Um George Perez starting out with, and also Tom Grummet. So some, you know, heavy um, artistic talent that he worked with, but really redefining what that team was and uh, where you can go with uh, those type of characters. So without further ado, let's dig into it. This is Marv Wolfman. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, So... We we have a lot of stuff to uh, to ask you, and I'm going to jump right in. We kind of, you know, ask everyone their more or less their origin story. But I want to, I you know, we we've done a lot of studying on you uh, as much as we could, obviously, without stalking you and being rude about it. Um, but how did you get your your start into the comic book world? Um. Yeah, are you talking professionally or as a fan? Um, well, a little bit of both. I'm sure okay. one parlayed into the other. As a fan, um, a friend of mine and I got together to watch TV one night and after a show called How to Duty, which was a big kid show back in the 1950s, and its title alone couldn't be used today. But um, uh, we did not get up to change the channel for some reason, and that's the days before remotes. Uh, and the very next show on was The Adventures of Superman. And we had never seen it. We always had changed the channel previously. Um, and we watched Superman at the end of the uh, show. It said Superman is based on the copyrighted character appearing in Superman and Action Comics Monthly. So the two of us got up, walked to the corner where there was a newsstand, and bought our first comic. And that was pretty much how it happened. Uh, it professionally, um, well, even a little bit before that, uh, uh, Julie Schwartz, who was uh, a well-known editor and a brilliant editor and a real cool guy, uh, edited a lot of comics for DC. And I wrote a letter uh, to uh, to him, as I did uh, fairly often, and he published it. And Julie had the t- uh, Julie would actually print the address of the people who uh, um, who, wrote, who wrote. And uh, a few days later, I got in the mail two different fan magazines, uh, which uh, they saw the address and they were trying to get more people into fandom. I had no knowledge. I knew nothing about this, but both of them were really interesting. And I got into comic fandom at that point. So... You, you know, there was a lot of ramp up to this point, but um, in, I believe it's 72, using, you know, our amazing research tool called Wikipedia, um, you took over for uh, Roy Thomas as the editor of Marvel Comics. First, um, what I thought was interesting in charge of the black and white line of uh, magazines, comic magazines, um, what was the... um, you know, they and you said something to the effect of, or were quoted as saying that there was not a lot of support for that, and sort of eventually kind of atrophied in, in in terms of the color. But what did you find in terms of the strengths of the black and white format? And do you think that had it been supported, uh, that would be something that would continue today, or was it always a sort of a unfortunately dying effort once color came in, just like as if movies when they got the sound well that you know the uh the situation because i was the editor at warren magazines editing creepy eerie and vampirella so 
the situation at Marvel was many years later. Uh, I broke into comics in 1967, and I think the Warren material was 1973, uh, or around approximately there. Uh, I think in terms of black and white and color, uh, the fans in 1972 and 1973 were just starting to get a little bit older. Generally, comics appealed or were uh, marketed towards 8 to 14-year-olds. And I think uh, the Warren magazines, which were horror magazines, and then uh, Marvel's uh, version of them, I was brought in for that reason, um, uh, was starting to aim at, a high, uh, at an older audience. But the problem was the older audience really wasn't totally there yet. It would still be a few more years before an older audience came in and the type of material we were already doing, because we're older, uh, so we're going to write sad stories that we enjoy. Um, I think uh, it took a few years for the market to catch up to what we really wanted to do, which was slightly older stuff at the same time, still doing the uh, Marvel comics and the DC comics. Uh, the, that was our love for, for many decades. Wondering as a writer, because you did mention you, you worked with horror books before, when you're writing horror books, how do you keep the horror fans happy, but also write it so that maybe a general audience or other folks who might not be so into horror might be interested in, in reading the books as well? Well, I think the first thing you do is you write for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write for the audience that you want to go for, right. uh, not necessarily the audience that may be there yet. Um, also, if you go to bookstores back then, you will see tons of horror novels and horror horror stories. People were into it, but they hadn't yet quite been into it in comics. The other problem with the horror comics, for the most part, until Tomb of Dracula, was that they were all the same. They were all based on what EC Comics used to do, which was a short six to eight page story with a punch ending at the end. Um, so... Uh, that type of material loses interest fairly quickly because if you don't keep coming up with brilliant new ideas, you have five stories in one book and they're all the same and they're all approached the same. I mean, they're gorgeous artwork and the writing is pretty good, but they're the same. The beauty of what Marvel did with Tomb of Dracula was they made it a continued series and they made it something that came out every month and you follow the story over the period. It wasn't just an eight-page story. It was a story that may take you several years to read it. So it was much more like reading a novel or a series of novels. When you were doing working on Tomb of Dracula, um, did you have to, was the comics code uh, keeping an eye on your books a little more than maybe other books because of the past history of horror books? Or did did they, you know, look at you like they looked at any other book? It's really strange for the comics code because, yes, I argued with them every month. Every <laughs> month. And what happened was, after a while, I realized what to do uh, to essentially do the type of books I wanted without having to fight every single month. I put in some really gross stuff. I put in something totally awful that I knew they were going to take out and had nothing to do with the story. And they took it out and left in the stuff that I really wanted. Uh, I wasn't interested in, you know, doing slasher type stuff. Uh, the horror that I wanted to do was psychological horror. So it was a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting thing with that is that at some point, because uh, as I say, we were arguing every single month over something or another, but um, I was arguing with the head of the uh, Comics Code Authority at that particular time. And at one point asked him why we in Tomb of Dracula were doing things that weren't allowed in other books. Um, And he essentially said, anyone looking at Tomb of Dracula would know that this is a much more of an adult book. It's written for that. The artwork is aimed towards an older, so you're reaching an older audience. And we don't believe kids are reading your book. And that's why you're allowed to do other type of material. It was really interesting to me because it meant that they were always operating in context, which we never saw. Uh, But now we knew in context of the industry, we were not doing material that would be aimed for kids. And therefore, um, a more adult audience uh, would would be um, 
following it. Now, you mentioned that, but having that adult audience, did that keep Dracula and even sort of Werewolf by Night from joining other characters in the Marvel Universe because they wanted to keep that maybe towards a younger audience? They didn't want to believe that into their books? I think um, Werewolf by Night was a very different situation. It was much more of an adventure title mm-hmm. uh, with, that happened to have a werewolf as the lead. Uh, Tomb of Dracula did cross over a couple of times with uh, some other Marvel books, but always m- more of the macabre type characters and more of the characters like even Silver Surfer, which was not considered a superhero Um but Tomb of Dracula, we were pretty much allowed to do what we wanted, uh, with a few exceptions, mm-hmm. where we had to, uh, you know, pull it back a touch. But the code let us do, get away with 90% of it over time. In the beginning, they didn't. As I said, uh, we argued every single month for years. Um, but uh, the code let us do prim- pretty much everything we wanted. Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Nova for a second, who's a, a pure superhero character. Uh, we talked to Danny Fingeroff, and he sort of said that in the 60s, it was Spider-Man. In the 70s, Nova was the young superhero. In the 80s, they tried with Speedball. 90s, maybe Darkhawk. Um, did you feel Nova was going to be the next teen superhero breakout star that Spider-Man had become? Uh, I My feeling was I was writing to Dracula. Uh, which was aimed at Marvel's oldest audience. And uh, I felt that um, a lot of the writers wanted to write for that age group. Uh, They wanted to do something like that. And I wanted to see, while I was writing Tomb of Dracula, I wanted something for the younger group. I didn't want the younger kids not to have a comic that they could read uh, because everyone else wanted to write a much more adult book. Um, So Tomb Man Called Nova was very specifically created to go for the youngest audience. I mean, if you look right on top of the first issue, it said in the in the style of Spider-Man or something like that. Um, and we had the corniest villains and everything. But um, it was all designed to reach a younger audience. And what's interesting is that for years, I never heard any fans talking about Nova at all. But in the last eight to 10 years, I would say a ton of them have, and they're exactly at the age that back then they were 12, which was the age I was aiming the book for. Uh, So it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And I think it was great because he was a flawed hero. He'd made mistakes. He, you know, he didn't always listen to what other people had to say, but he'd learn from it and evolved as the book evolved. I think that's what caught on with people so well. Well, uh, the thing of it is he was a character, you know, you can write those same exact stories and tilted in a way that would, that would go for the adult audience. Rich Ryder could have been really depressed by what was going on. He could be, re- or he could write it in with an optimistic viewpoint aimed towards the younger audience. It's just how you want to approach the story. So aside from Nova, you co-created a number of characters, right? Including Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, Deathstroke, Tim Drake, Black, Cat, Bullseye, on and on. Um, I'm curious uh, what. So, my, I'm, I'm curious what your, you know, what your level of ownership you felt over these characters were, and did you sort of follow them uh, after you created them, and you know, were um, surprised in any way by what directions they took? I have made it a practice since the days of Tomb of Dracula. That's back in the 1970s is never to look at a book that I created after I leave it. The reason is I never checked with the people who wrote the books before me. When I took on Teen Titans, I didn't check with Bob Haney or any of those guys who had done it. Uh, When I, uh, you know, uh, my feelings on Tomb of Dracula are very well known how much I absolutely love working on it, but I never wanted to look at it again. There's no way that anybody else could get into my head as I can't get into theirs. And therefore it will always be wrong, but these are good guys writing good stories just because I have a personal viewpoint of what the character should be. Doesn't mean anything because as I say, I didn't check with the previous writers, what I should do. Why should anyone looking 
why should they come to me and ask me to give them a, a review of their material? They have to do what I did, which is just go out and do the best stories they can go can do in their voice. And that's what I did. And I don't, I didn't want to put, I didn't want to create any problems for them going on and um, uh, trying to do a book that they really cared for, even if it was 180 degrees from what I would have ever done. Sure. That makes sense. Um, Were there characters that you created or co-created that you were surprised by their success or others that you thought would have more longevity that maybe they, they did have? Uh, Back when I was doing a lot of that stuff early on, there was no real way to measure how popular the characters were. Um, uh, I I never assumed, or George Perez never assumed, that Teen Titans was going to be a hit. It had failed twice before. We just decided we were going to do the comic the way we always wanted to see a, a superhero comic done. But we honestly thought that DC would cancel it after six issues. So we were going to put everything we possibly could into it to make it the book that we wanted. And we were totally surprised that it turned out that other people enjoyed it too. I mean, we knew we were doing good work, but we didn't know that it would become popular. Uh, so you never know the books that are going to be, that somehow fans grab onto or reject. Well, you just don't know that. You keep doing the work that you feel is right, and you just hope that people will like it. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So, moving moving then from you know the um, the Perez era to I guess the Grummet era in that continuity, you know, what was your goal for? I would say aging the characters and you know bringing in storylines that maybe are a slightly more adult. Like, how did you? Was there a plan, in other words, for them uh, growing up and how the story would move according to that chronology? I think in comics, uh, especially comics featuring teenagers or younger, um, age growth is very, very slow. Uh, You know, I think Spider-Man went from 16 to 22, maybe at most over 30, 40 years. Uh, the Titans started all as younger teenagers. Uh, some of them, you know, young as uh, 15, 14 or 15, and as old as 17, maybe. By the time I left it, I think they were in the, all uh, in their 20s, uh, which is why you took out the word teen. Um, but it's very slow process because uh, sometimes their age is what is behind that particular book. Teen Titans were much slower than anybody else because for for a long time it had the word teen in it. Therefore, it would have been weird to have Teen Titans all with gray beards and stuff. (laughs) Wanted to jump in and um, you made an interesting point about how, you know, when people write your characters or you write um, for other characters or write about other characters, excuse me, you know, you're writing the, the best stories that you can for them. And I think that holds true when it comes to, uh, to Christ's on infinite earths. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's groundbreaking. Uh, I think anyone who starts reading comics jumps in at that point or, you know, very soon thereafter. Um, but I was curious, you know, as a writer, it's, that's a huge undertaking for something, you know, of a story arc that, that encompassing, um, was there any, so it's a two-part question. Uh, was there a feeling that like, wow, we really, we're hitting it out of the park with this one because you're, you're writing basically any and every character in the DC universe at the time was involved. Um, was there a feeling that this is going to be I mean, obviously, in terms of work, it was huge. But did you feel like when you were writing it, like this is this is going to be a big deal? The odd thing is that I thought what the big deal was going to be at the end of Crisis, what the whole new DC universe was going to become. And my original uh, pitch was that um, 
uh, all books would start over mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, they decided not to do that, but uh, that was the original pitch. So I thought that that everyone would be concentrating on what we reached. In other words, uh, crisis was the roadmap that was taking us to the destination. And I thought the destination was going to be the big thing. It turned out over over time, it was very quick to realize it was crisis itself that was the big thing. Um, that has never been out of print in, since 1986. Uh, they keep coming out uh, with new editions and new material and everything in it. It's pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, every time I spend like another $80 on a newer version, I'm like, what did I miss? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, I knew that I was doing a good job with it uh, when I think I got a, with issue one, I got a fan letter from Alan Moore, who, who was the only person who figured out what I had done in that issue um, and why uh, we introduced and killed off the, um, Injustice League and that are three all within a few pages. Like why did why did we waste our time doing that? And he he's the only one who figured it out. So uh realized that it was good. Also very nice when the publisher comes to you and said, My God, every single character sounded perfect. How did you do that? You know, well, I've been reading this stuff forever, so I, I know what those <laughs> characters thought sound like. And I I could do that. Um it was uh, whether it was going to be uh, enjoyed or not beforehand. I had no idea. Is could have been the biggest mistake in the world. Uh, but we decided to, to again, like we did on Titans, we were going to do exactly the story we wanted. And um, it turned out that it really did help DC the way it was intended to. It was bring it brought in a lot of new readers to DC who had only been Marvel fans before. And that was the whole goal. I mean, it's, they try to top it every five, 10 years now, you know, all the various crises, crises that, that happen, identity crisis, infinite crisis, which are all pretty great, I must say. And they all try to live up to the original, which is obviously clear. Um, in line with the, the crisis questions, um, you know, there are a lot of characters that were written out of continuity due to the storylines and whatnot. Um, was there any blowback or concern amongst some of the other writers or artists? Because they're like, hey, look, these characters are, you know, more or less being taken away from us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody loved the book except the other writers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we knew that was going to happen. Right. And the problem is, I mean, this may sound callous, but we were trying, DC was not selling very well. Without being, uh, I, I don't want to sound callous in this, though it's going to sound it. Uh, DC was not selling very well at the time. Uh, DC sales uh, were maybe 50,000, 60,000 a book, maybe generally less than that. And Marvel was selling in the several hundred thousand. Uh, the only book at DC that was selling in the same numbers was Titans, followed by Legion. Mm-hmm. Um, so the company needed something to draw attention to itself. You could stay in the past. You can go and write the stuff that I that we all grew up with and write new versions of that and do a really good job. And everyone would be very happy and they'd stop buying the books. But boy, they love that stuff. They just no longer bought it. It's like all the people who wrote to me about Supergirl's death after that happened, who hadn't bought an issue of Supergirl in 10, 15 years. So you, and I'm not joking because they'd come up to me at conventions and they say, that was the best Supergirl story ever. I love Supergirl. She's my favorite character. And I asked the last time, when did you read the book last? And, you know, it's like uh, they were still getting out of diapers at the time. Um, (laughs) So the the thing is, the company needed something big that was going to change things. And yes, there were going to be people who wanted to write the stuff that they grew up with. And so did I. I wanted to write Superman. I wanted to write all of those. But uh, that wouldn't have helped the company at that particular point. 
It had to be revolutionary. It could not be evolutionary. It couldn't be slow. It had to be something big, very fast. And you had to do it well. That was the intimidating part. Because mm-hmm. it, so much could go wrong with that. And it was so easy to go wrong with that. And I spent a number of years plotting the story. I didn't rush that one out. I didn't do it as if I was on a monthly schedule. I plotted most of the book out before uh, the first one ever came out. I didn't plot every issue, but I plotted what was going to happen generally in each one uh, because I had the notes from day one. If you didn't have the, if you didn't know and on page one how the last page of the book was going to end, you can't create a story that leads you to that in ways that the readers would never expect. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure that it was original, and the other and the other reader, I'm sorry, the other writers who did protest, you know. They had to live with it, and uh, I don't think they ever changed their mind. Uh, you know, they still probably hate it, but it helped save DC. And every fan I meet talks about how much they love Crisis. And oddly enough, so many fans come up and say it was the first DC comic they bought. Yeah. And I, my first question to them is, "Did you understand it? Because it's so complex." And they all picked up on it, which meant I did my job. It was the first comic that made me feel something, you know, because up until that point, and, you know, I, I had gotten into comics because of these two guys later, uh, you know, around Death of Superman time. But then going back, um, you know, you, you catch up and I had to read uh, Crisis a couple of times, but I was like, whoa. You know, you have, you have to put yourself into that frame of mind of, okay, well, this is, this, this was happening back then. This was, this was the world and this is world changing. So it was, uh, it was, it was just amazing. Um, last crisis question, because I know uh, the other guys have a couple of others, um, is, you know, the work you did with uh, George Perez is just synonymous uh, as it pertains to a lot of stuff that you've done. Um, do you, did you get to choose who you work with in that sense? Or it just, you know, the DC guys did it because, you know, it seems like he captured your work visually perfectly. Well, remember George and I had just done five years worth of Teen Titans. So uh, plus we were friends. Uh, So uh, we used to get together for lunch every week and just talk stuff. And George was not scheduled to do uh, Crisis. He was going to go on to something else after Titans. And we'd go out to lunch, and I would tell him, you know, he'd tell me what he was going to work on. i tell him what I'm doing on Crisis. And over a period of time, George finally said, okay, forget it. I want to do it. I have to do this book. And I went, good, because I was hoping he would say that. He was really the only one who could draw it correctly. Others could draw it well, mm-hmm. uh, but nobody could do it correctly except for him. Uh, and I was so thrilled that he decided to come on. And from that point on, we just treated it the way we treated the Titans, which is I'd come in with a rough idea for the issue, and then he and I would break it down uh, because George is so good at that. I said uh, one question with Crisis, and I, you, you spoke to it before and how you – captured the voices of so many characters perfectly mm-hmm. i am just wondering about the game plan that you put into this because you said you know about a year in advance you were working on things um how did you come up with what characters you wanted to use in this and how to use their strengths and weaknesses in the book well the first goal i had uh, was not to use any of the main dc characters for a while that's why and this is what alan moore figured out that's why um I used the Injustice League. I used all the secondary char- all the secondary superheroes. My thinking on that was that we were trying to get Marvel fans to come over. We were trying to get the Marvel Zombies, which is what they called themselves. Not, not I didn't call them that. Uh, the Marvel Zombies to take a look at a DC book because a lot of Marvel fans back then would not even look at one. Uh, they were totally uninterested in DC and. It took something special. So I, my figuring is if they don't like DC, 
and you ask why, they'll probably say they don't like Superman or Batman back then or Wonder Woman, the three D three main characters that DC had. So I'm not going to put them in. I'm going to put in characters they've never heard of, but are good DC characters, solid DC characters, and make it so to see how expansive the universe is, not how tiny. If you think DC is just about Superman or just about Batman, you're wrong. Now, they happen to be my favorites. So, uh, you know, I love those characters, but I did not want to put the same characters they already don't like into it. I wanted them to be able to approach it as if uh, this was the first time they looked at DC and, oh my God, there's a million characters I never heard of. This is interesting. And uh, that worked. And um, what Alan picked up on was the, it opens with the death of Earth-3 and the killing off of all those characters, Ultraman and Superwoman and, you know, um, whatever, the, whatever the characters are. And we kill them in four pages, essentially. And the reason for that is psychologically, because I knew that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman and the others were not going to be in. Or, you know, they were not going to appear until about issue five or six. So what they were going to see was... Ultraman get killed in two second, two panels. Ultraman, Superman. They get to see Batman killed. That means he's. they know that the villain is so powerful they could destroy the entire Justice League because these were doppelgangers. They happened to be evil, but they were the doppelgangers. So psychologically, without thinking about it, they go, this villain was powerful enough to, to kill Superman in two panels. This character was popular enough to, uh, powerful enough to kill Green Lantern in two panels. Uh, this is a big villain. Let's see what we do. Okay, and that's um, that makes a reader go, okay, I got to see how this works. How are these characters going to survive uh, if if the doppelgangers all failed? I, I got to gush for a second because that. The way you explain that is absolutely brilliant. Like the the thinking behind that and using the secondary characters, I it's unbelievably it took, brilliant. It took a long time. I took several years to plot it, and stuff like that doesn't come in um, on a monthly schedule. Fortunately, DC's anniversary, fiftieth anniversary, was coming up in four years or five years, so I had some time to actually keep coming back to it, keep adding to it, and keep uh, evolving the story until I was happy with it. Um, I wanted to uh, move from uh, from DC to a character that I appreciate. Uh, as a Superman fan, as you could see, um, uh, I, uh, I read that you, you were instrumental in the revamping of Lex Luthor. And which I think was... Fantastic, because up until that point, he was kind of dopey. Yeah, dopey. <laughs> um, and your your version, I would say, is what carried him out. You know, up until modern times. I mean, there have been some tweaks, as you know, most characters, uh, you know, do they change over the years? But the uh, the heart of the character has been really your your version. Um, was so when you go to, you know, you say, I'm going to redo, revamp uh, a, a new ca- a existing character, someone such as Lex Luthor, who is not like any fly-by-night character. This is, you know, this is the main, this is Superman, you know, the bread and butter of DC. You want to uh, revamp his arch nemesis. Was there any type of hesitation from DC at that point, or were they just on board for everything? No, there was some hesitation, but I don't remember all of it at this particular point. Uh, I remember pitching it first, and they rejected it. Um, there was an issue of Action Comics, I think, was double-sized. It had, the, it had a new version of Luther, which at that point was the super suit, and it had the new Brainiac, which I had come up with. Uh, that's when I pitched the Luther thing, and they went, no, they wanted to go with the super suit. Um, my feeling on the super suit was that it's ridiculous. Uh, I don't mean a pitching it. I mean, 
it's essentially having a person try to punch out Superman by wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. As you don't, you don't take on Superman physically. You're going to lose. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to lose in one way or another if you try to challenge him on strength. But Lex Luthor has something that no other villain has. The biggest brain in the world. Yeah. He is the smartest man anywhere. He doesn't need a super suit. He could figure it out on his own. He could do things that nobody else can. Superman is great, but he's not that smart. He's not super, he's not Luther smart. He's smart, but not Luther smart. So the idea was pitch Superman against a character who can outthink him at every single moment. And if you're going to do that, you can't just do the typical Luther story where he's in prison, in his prison graves. He takes like a robot out of his teeth and breaks free, attacks somebody in a giant robot, gets captured by Superman, and that's it. That was every every Luther story I ever read when I was a kid, mm-hmm. every single one of them. And so you don't. I didn't want to ever have Luther in prison again. I wanted him so he. If, He's that smart. He could figure out a way to prevent him from going to prison. He is smart enough to figure out a way that everything he does is legal, just totally immoral. So, and the stuff he does that's not legal, he's smart enough to disguise it. So that that was the my view on on Luther. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it makes sense, and I th- I think that. You know, they're the two people that could probably take down Superman the easiest are Lex Luthor and Lois Lane, both of which have no powers. And Lois is just, you know, because she loves him so much. And that's one of Superman's weaknesses is he loves people. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Go ahead. (laughs) I I just have a quick question about uh, Tim Drake. Um, He's coming off of Jason Todd. The fans did not care so much for Jason Todd. Was Tim Drake what you your ideal what robin should be or was it something that you just put sort of felt needed to be put into the book to fill in after jason todd um they asked me to come up with a new robin and i want i spent some time trying to figure out um what robin's purpose is mm-hmm. and one of the things which was really good because uh, because it wasn't planned uh, is that Batman had been going crazier over the previous year or two. He's just gotten a little bit more violent. He had gone off. And I went, okay, let's use that. And let's make Jason, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let's make Tim uh, a character who could figure out these things. He saw Robin, he saw Dick Grayson in the circus doing something. And then later he saw Robin do the same move, figured it out, figured out who Batman was, figured out all of this stuff because he was smart. And then he approached Batman saying, I want to be your new character. You can't work. You're going crazy. You need somebody to ground you all the time. You need you need to remember why you're doing this. And I'm that person. I can keep you from going crazy because you are going crazy right now. And you're going to start doing things that you'll regret. And that was the attitude that I took with him. How pivotal do you think it was for Batman to hit that point in the comics where, you know, for so many years, you know, he was the overall good guy, you know, just he knocked someone out, put him in jail, and that'd be the end of it. For him to sort of take a darker turn and things are starting to affect him from all those years. Well, that's the reason that I wanted Tim in there. Right. Uh, to, I don't like the very, very dark Batman. I don't, I don't want him to be the Batman from the 1950s, but I, and I don't want him to be, you know, uh, tamed too much, but I want him to be a force of that's positive, not negative. Um, I wanted to take a turn into Marvel uh, for a bit, uh, specifically your work in the seventies and some of the new characters you introduced. Um, first, uh, in Spider-Man, uh, when you know, in, in the late seventies, where Peter Parker's. Um, proposing to Mary Jane, who at first refuses, of course, eventually comes around. Uh, but that gave you the opening to introduce um, Felicia Hardy, the Black Cat. Um, 
what, you know, what was your, what was your, was that always sort of the plan uh, that she would refuse and then you would give a good sort of comparison uh, uh, or, or an alternative to Mary Jane so that ultimately, you know, we, we might get back to that at some point. Uh, you would like to think so, but no. <laughs> um, uh, my feeling was Spider-Man worked in the early days because he was this very nibbishy character, Peter Parker, who did everything wrong. He was a nerd. Uh, he, he just did it wrong and he couldn't get girls. And suddenly he's involved with a, a supermodel. I, I just didn't like that. I didn't think Peter should be in that position. Uh, I wanted him to go back to what he had been, uh, but to age him a little bit, but not too much. Uh, and at that time, I certainly was not thinking about uh, Felicia. Um, when what happened was with her, and a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes, despite the fact that in the first, in this Spider-Man issue, that she makes her first appearance, I very clearly said why she this character was what it was. I even printed a uh, a, a cover. If you look back at it in the letter column of Spider-Woman, because by, uh, the Black Cat was original. I created her to be a villain in Spider-Woman. And uh, what happened was I had come up with the character and then uh, they offered me Spider-Man. And uh, I went with that and I took the Black Cat with me, but the Black Cat was always going to be a, spider, a Spider-Woman villain in the original. Again, read the letter column. It's, it's all there. Uh, we did a cover with the uh, with her from Spider Woman. Um, uh, my idea was that she was created the bad luck, and but she was dressed in in my original plot, uh, sort of like a nineteen forties film noir female, uh, large slouched hat, long dress, all that stuff. So she was fully created when I went well. I'm not going to continue that story in this uh, in and let somebody else write the character. I want to do it myself. Uh, so I'm going to take her and bring her into Spider-Man. But what I didn't even think about because she was not a Spider-Man villainous was that um, it created a different reason to be or how she approached things that, uh, that, I was not expecting. I would. I would not have done a lot of the uh, romantic stuff up front, um, but it fit only because my mind was that she was uh, from Spider Woman, not from Spider Man. But it, people have asked, did I take it from Catwoman? And no, because she was a villain for Spider Woman, so there was never going to be that sort of tension. And I so Catwoman never was in my mind. And it was like, when people pointed out, I went, oh, God, I didn't even see it because I was so concentrating on her for a different project and just following through on that. I mean, I feel like uh, that to me, it was a a happy accident, if you will. I mean, it wasn't an accident, but I think it really, even though she was designed for Spider-Woman, she really worked well with the character of Peter Parker and gave him... Uh, She, well... Once I decided to pull her over, my thinking there was Spider-Man had never had a female villain in all those years. I mean, 200 issues go by uh, pretty much. Uh, never had a female villain. So I'm going to put her in this book, you know, uh, do something we haven't done before. Yeah. And then I, I, I do like how she evolved um, as that character to be, you know, villainous at, at first and then. I don't want to say the word frenemy, but <laughs> I did um, sort of, you know, just a more complicated relationship. It just wasn't one versus the other. There were some underlying flirty tensions and, and things like that. But if I, had, um, if I had thought of even if if Catwoman even entered my mind at some point, I would never have done that. Right. Fortunately, I didn't think of her. Yeah. Um because it, I would have gone, this is too similar to Batman then, uh, Batman with a villain out like that. But 
fortunately, I didn't think of Catwoman and was able to create that for the character with a little bit more freedom and she had a superpower and she wasn't in my mind anything connected with Catwoman, but you know, I don't know what I would have done totally. Well, I, I think I think you I I get you know the comparisons will always come, but I, I think she's been carved out as a very um unique character. Yeah. Um despite um, despite all that. Yeah, um, I was really pleased. Uh, that she's been used so much by everybody. You also worked uh, for a bit on uh, Fantastic Four, uh, which I think um, I, I see you quoted as saying was one of your favorite comics. First, I, I just want to know, you know, what what is it about the Fantastic Four that, uh, you know, made it so memorable for you? And then I have a follow-up on a, a character you created there as well. Uh, the The FF was when Stan and Jack were working at the top, they were constantly creating brand new things that we had never seen before in comics. It's hard to look back at it now because everybody has grown up knowing Galactus and Silver Surfer and all of those, Black Panther and all of those characters. But back then, when you see these things for the very first time ever, it's like amazing. Uh, They were at the height of their imaginative ability and they were doing incredible characters. So every month that you'd look forward to it because you had no idea where they were going. Uh, I, I find I find the same thing, sort of the adventures into the unknown. Um, it, it really sort of distinguishes that comic and, and that series from from others and, and continues to do so even with all the resets. Um, you know, just the interpretations are, are fantastic. Um, on your run, you you know, you just mentioned Silver Surfer and Galactus. Um you introduced a new herald uh, to Galactus, Terax. And um, just wanted to know a little bit about the inception of that character. And um, did you, you know, did it just sort of strike you that, hey, you know, Silver Surfer has rebelled, Galactus uh, needs uh, a new herald, uh, let's, let's create one. And, um, you know, how you got sort of, if you had any influence on the look of the character, if that was your sort of co-creator, was given a lot of freedom for. Um, I'm not sure uh, what the answer is. Uh, uh, Terax, uh, it did strike me that uh, Galactus's heralds all seem to be, have powers of the... uh, the air, the water, you know, all that sort of stuff. So thought, why not the earth itself? Uh, it's, the elements were in the original version of uh, Galactus. So the next one was the ground, the earth. Uh, earth, small e, um, not big. So um, it just made sense. And terror, that part of it, if you just add the axe, the X to it uh, is Earth. So that was a fairly simple thing to do. As far as the look, that was uh, John. Uh, he, he designed it. I said, I think, I, I believe I said I wanted a huge guy who had this incredible axe with him because I wanted to fit it into the name. Um, give it a reason why I was Terax. Uh, then uh, just so he would have this axe type of thing. But John designed the character. I came up with it, and he did, he pretty much just followed what should be done. He did a great job. I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question that has nothing to do with comics, although I guess it could. But um, you had the opportunity to work on a property um, that was near and dear to me, and probably my two friends here, uh, Transformers. Um, what was what was that experience like for you? working for or working with a property that had been so ingrained into people and you're basically creating a new, a newer version, which was, I get the two confused. I know there's beast wars and beast machines. Well, I started on beast on transformers. No other title. (laughs) Oh, it was the generation one. I was actually a showrunner for them. Uh, They, I had written an episode of GI Joe and the studio really liked it and asked uh, me if I'd like to be a um, producer. But I was moving out of New York to California, so I had to turn it down. But they said, in which case, would you like to be a story editor for us? 
And I said, yeah, sure, that sounded good. And they assigned me to the last five or six episodes of uh, Transformers for that season. And, and, you, and you fixed something that that broke our hearts. You brought back Optimus Prime. Well, what happened there, it's so interesting because like I, for years, nobody ever talked to Transformers. And I did a bunch of them. Um, and recently, that's almost all I get. I don't oh, really? I wasn't quite sure why. But um, the thing of it was that for Hasbro, they thought they were coming out with a new line of toys, so they were going to get rid of the old line. And they back then, nobody took the toys took toys seriously outside of being toys. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize how much people loved the characters. Now, Hasbro had very strict orders for all of us writers to do good stories. They were actually more interested in doing that than publicizing the latest vehicle or something. Their attitude was, and they said it straight out, um, if you write really good stories, the fans will want to play those characters on their own. We don't have to sell it. So just do good stories. And that's exactly what we did. But they didn't know there was uh, that huge a fandom for the characters. And when they killed uh, Optimus in the movie, they got hate mail and they were shocked. They were just literally shocked at how how serious everybody was about these characters. And they realized they had made a mistake. I was now the very last of the story editors still finishing off the last five episodes. And they said, we need a uh, two-parter right away that brings back Optimus and every other character to show that every single Transformer is still alive, uh, including the next year's line. So (laughs) I had to write something like 400 Transformers. uh, And I was given all these thick books of all the characters. Um, And had to somehow compose, create a story, get it both parts written in less than two weeks. It usually took two weeks to write one episode, let alone something like that. Um, so that, that was it. It was, uh, I was not a Transformers fan, I have to be honest. I never saw this cartoon show until I moved out. I thought I was going to be assigned. G.I. Joe, because that's what I wrote for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly I'm a Transformer, so I very quickly uh, got up to snuff on that, read everything, uh, watched as many of the cartoons as I could. Really liked it, because I like giant robot stories. But uh, I didn't realize that we, that transform that was what Transformers totally was when I, in, uh, you know, at all. Uh, it's, I was a big fan of uh, Rydeen and a bunch of the Japanese uh, shows because I would watch them. I lived in Flushing, New York, and Flushing had a very large Asian population, mm-hmm. and they had a um, an UHF station that played all uh, anime. So I was I was seeing anime before anyone else even knew it existed, and I loved uh, things like Rydeen and all these giant robot things. I just didn't know that we were doing them here, uh, which was several years later, of course. Yeah, it was uh, it was a big deal for me back in the day. <laughs> it's a big deal for so many people. Uh, as I say, I don't think I realized it either, because to me, they were just toys. And yeah. um, I don't think anyone fully understood what we were doing with them until it became apparent because of the uh, death of Optimus how much we now had to concentrate on the characters more and make sure the characters were really well done. Yeah. And then they were, I mean, they were, I mean, you know, they were, uh, they had personality. They had, you know, even though the robots, they had feeling, um, you know, it was a combination of the well-written stories, the voices. Uh, yeah, it's it, uh, it really, everyone who was working on it realized also it was the best experience any of us had in animation because we were allowed to write good stories Mm. normally when you're doing a toy show the whole thing is to show the toys in operation Mm. uh, and the vehicles and everything else and in this they didn't ask us to uh to specifically do anything outside of good story it's interesting we um actually spoke to bob budiansky uh, about the work he did in coming up with a lot of the um, 
character traits and such that were put on the original toy boxes and uh um you know how much when even though he he basically said he did a lot of these in the weekend but how much it sort of spawned into um the personalities that were on the show and then the stories that could be explored um Mm -hmm. so that it was just not um you know sort of the like you explained the toys just kind of crunching together yeah their attitude i think made from really good shows because they knew that we we had to do good stories. Um, I did uh, G.I. Joe for them, but I also did it for later on for other companies, and they didn't um, they didn't approach the material in the same way. And I don't think any of the G.I. Joe fans uh, liked any of those episodes. Well, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but I have one question, and it's a series that I I'm so glad. I see so many more people with discovering it or rediscovering it. And that's vigilante. Um, and it seems like you had a lot of fun putting that together. How did, how did you pitch vigilante and, and what was the thinking behind that? Well, it's an obvious one. Teen Titans is doing really well. And they said, they asked me if I had a spinoff character or a spinoff from that, if I wanted it. And uh, I figured Vigilante, which was the character I was going to create for Titans anyway, would be a logical one. It would allow me to write uh, very different type stories for a very different audience. I would have preferred that being an adult book. Um, and I tried to do, I structured those stories very differently than I had the superhero material. So same thing later with Deathstroke as well. When I did the individual Deathstroke series, he became a slightly or very different type of character than he had when he was in Titans. Is it tough though? Because you seem like, you know, you wanted to make it a more of a dope book and, but you're a little bit handcuffed with things. Is that frustrating as a writer when you have these sort of big ideas, but you sort of have to narrow it down to, to fill, meet a certain you do, criteria? You do is you don't even think about that. Okay. You know, up front what's going to be accepted and what's not going to be accepted. So you don't even, think, oh, well, I'm going to put this in and not have it accepted. Uh, It's a waste of my time. So uh, you don't aim in that particular way. So you cater to stories differently and you tell the best story still, but you change your audience and you're going to have different type of material for different age groups. If I were allowed to do it as an adult, uh, it would have been a very, it would have been a much more powerful book. And I think the material was aimed to be an adult material, but um, it wasn't so. I never I never even thought about aiming it differently. I wasn't going to fight the code on that. Gotcha. I lose. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely wonderful, and uh, I, I appreciate you creating that character so much. I, uh, I wish it had sold better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, was that a surprise, though? Because, you know, it, it seemed like, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's a badass character and something that people you know, I would think would be like, oh, wow, let's check this out. Um, I don't know. It it did not sell well. Uh, Certainly not like the Titans. Uh, That's why eventually eventually I had to give it up anyway because uh, my schedule was just too insane. I think Crisis was part of the reason and handed it all out uh, to, to the others who worked on it afterwards. And welcome back, everyone. That was our interview with Marv Wolfman. Uh, that was pretty cool. I got to say, I was a little inter- a little uh, nervous talking to him. Uh, you know, he's someone who, I uh, again, as I consider comic book royalty, you know, he's done it all. Um, he's worked on some great characters and storylines. Um, and, you know, he's a pretty big name. So to be asking him questions about stuff that he's probably been asked a million times at this point in his career. It's a little nervous, but he was absolutely just a pleasure to talk to. Yeah. You're talking to someone who is a huge part of comic book history and the work he's done for Marvel, for DC as a writer, as an editor, just being uh, central to so many uh, integral stories. It, it was truly an honor to be able to speak to him. This one was, as we keep saying, a big get. Um, and you know, it was an honor to speak with him. Um, big part of our lives in terms of our, you know, comic book reading and, uh, great to hear, you know, from a master, uh, like we do so often, but, uh, you know, sometimes a a bit more special than, um, than others. So 
That'll do it for this week. Uh, tune in next week. We will have yet another member of comic book royalty. We just keep them coming. So come back, rate, review, subscribe, and we will see you then. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.